turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we continue today in a study in the book of 1 Timothy, and the Lord is willing and we, He doesn't come back before we get through, we'll go through 1 and 2 Timothy and then Titus, last books of the Apostle Paul. Before we read, uh, I want to recognize a couple that I didn't realize they were going to be here until today, John and Eleanor. Where are you, John and Eleanor Mann? Right there. We support John and Eleanor and uh, missionaries. No, I was going to say nobody loves the Word any more than he does. I'm sure there are some, but he loves the Word of God, preaches the Word of God faithfully, and uh, grateful for your ministry, brother and sister. Paul is writing to Timothy. We're going to read verses 12 through 17, but let's go back to verse 1, remind ourselves of who is writing this book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now slide down to verse 12. This is Paul's personal testimony. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you now that we can look to your word. Your word is what gives us what we need for today and for tomorrow and for eternity. And so, Father, I pray that you would help the word by the power of your Holy Spirit hammer its way into our hearts. God, even as the dramatic encounter that Paul had with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, I pray for such a transforming encounter to be had as people, even here in this service today, would look to the Word and see you, the living Christ. They would look to you and repent and be saved. So, Father, we thank you for this powerful testimony of our dear Apostle Paul, we pray that it would make its way into our hearts and our lives. And Father, I, I just want to lift up John and Elle to you and thank you for their ministry of the Word, how faithful they've been through the years. We pray for a continued faithfulness, Lord, and meeting every need that they have as they minister the gospel of Christ in faraway places and here in the United States. Father, attend your Word now. With the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Today, you probably see the title, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, as I often do. I borrow certain titles, certain things from other authors. This title was used in explaining this passage of Scripture by John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It also could be entitled, The Power of a Personal Testimony. Now, you know that several months ago in ABF, we went through a whole teaching about how to share your faith with other people, how to give away the faith that is yours in Jesus Christ. And one of the things we talked about, not negating the gospel from the Scriptures, Christ crucified for our sins according to the Scriptures, buried, raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. But one of the things that we talked about is taking that and how it has transformed your life and sharing that with other people. Let me say it this way, Christian, young Christian, older Christian, you have a story to tell. One of the things I heard, I I don't even remember, that's probably good, but I've heard it through the years from a very dear young brother in Christ, he said recently, he said, you know, I don't have a big testimony like some people do because I trusted in Christ at a young age. I didn't really fall into big sin. And I said, that is a testimony of God's grace. And even though you didn't fall into big sin, If you have grown up, even in the church, and you have ever once failed to follow the commands of God, then you need a Savior just as much as anyone. You have a testimony. And so, let's look at today. This is something that you can take your cue from the Apostle Paul. This is a great way to share what God has done in your life. And he shares it with us, with the the, uh, young Timothy, the man he left in charge there in Ephesus, and he shares his testimony in Jesus Christ. Now let me ask a couple of questions about this, because obviously you know the answers to these, but they make it even more powerful. Can God, and, and the reason I want to ask these questions is I want to give hope to you. Maybe not those of you who are here, sitting here in this room. I want to give hope to you if you have a family member who was as far away from the Lord as the Apostle Paul. And he didn't even know it. Can God really take a persecutor of the church and turn him into a preacher of the gospel? Can God take a murderer and make him a missionary. Could God really take his greatest earthly enemy and turn him into his greatest earthly servant? He can, and he did, and be encouraged that he can do it again. And all throughout this message, that's what I want you to hear, and I'll come to that at the very end. There is no one who is too far away. There is no one who is too far gone 
to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul begins his testimony at a great place that all of us could begin our testimony. Look at it in verse 12. I thank him who gave me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me. One of the reasons I read the the first verse is, again, this has this militaristic kind of a ring to it. By the command of God, he appointed me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. So remember this. Paul starts out by saying, hey, you know what? I received a divine commission. Guess what? So did you. You might not be a teacher. You might not be a preacher. I I stopped when I read through there that thank God he has given me strength to do what he appointed me to do. And as I studied that this week, I automatically anticipated a disconnect because the majority of you are not teachers, so you might exempt yourself from that, thanking God that he's given you strength. By far and away, the majority of you are not preachers, and so you might exempt yourself from that. But Paul, as a part of his testimony, and we need to see this too, saw what he was given to do as a divine commission. This is for the youngest and it's for the oldest. God has called you into his ministry. Do you need strength for the ministry to which he has called you? Do you? And you say, well, I'm, I'm just a dad. That could be one of the most important ministries that anyone is ever called to do. Dads, do you need strength? <laughs> you better believe you do. Moms, right there with the dads. Wow, what an important ministry. Appointed. Some of you who are not married, don't have kids. You've been given a relationship with others in your family and in your immediate circles. I think of those of you who have poured your lives into young children here in this church. Do you need strength for that? You better believe you do. And so to start his testimony, I thank God. Don't overlook that. That could almost be a throwaway kind of a comment. It's not. Remember what we said several weeks ago, you have been called into God's army, and you are a what? To to, to steal the words from Braveheart, you are a warrior poet in God's army. And you and I need strength. We Do we rely sometimes on the gifts that he has given us? But I'll tell you what, when I rely on my own strength and not the strength of the Lord to use me in his service, that's when I usually get myself into trouble. So I thank God that even though, I, I can't tell you the times Sunday by Sunday, Jan knows this, 
Sunday by Sunday, I feel like, Lord, I, I, I need strength. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this one more time. I don't know if I can preach. I, I, I need you. And so do you need the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. So more than 30 years. Now look, look at this. It's been 30 years since his conversion. We're going to talk about his conversion experience. Paul looked back. I'm going to measure my words carefully, looking back to several of the things we've said in some past sermons. Paul looked back and he remembered what he was and what he had done. And he he lists three things. And I had, as I was studying this week, I had to ask myself the question, I I, I wondered if Paul, looking back to what he had done and what he had been, if that caused him pain. And the reason I did that is because sometimes when I look back at what I was and what I did before I began to to follow Christ and experience His transformation, I feel pain. I cringe. Does anybody cringe when you look back at your past life? Paul was not afraid to say, this is what I was and this is what I did. And he was a religious person. Paul says in another place, look, I was exemplary. He could have said, I was a member of Heritage Baptist Church since I was a young person in the youth group where my youth pastor was teaching me big theological words like imputed. Hey, I'm telling you what, if our young people are learning what imputation and impartation of the life of Christ is all about, that is a good thing. So Paul could have said that. He said, look, you know, when I compare myself, that's a danger. When I compare myself with other people who were my contemporaries, I was far, I I was heads above them. I was by far and away a lot better, but he calls himself three things. Now, when I give verses on the screen like what I'm going to do, I'm giving those for a reference point to support what Paul says here and and to give you an opportunity to go and to study those. And sometimes I won't read the entire verse, but I want to show the context out of which Paul could say, I was a blasphemer. Here's here's what he said he was, a blasphemer. What did he do as a blasphemer? Oh, come on. He blasphemed. And here is Stephen. This is the first inkling we get of this. Stephen recognized it because Paul was a part of this group that thought they, as religious people, were better than others. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did. He was a blasphemer. Can blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be forgiven? Only if a person repents, if a person goes on blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, there, there is no other recourse. 
Paul called himself a blasphemer. He said, that's what I did because that's what I was. He also called himself a persecutor. In terms of, of, of his actions against the church of Jesus Christ, not only did he revile and oppose the name of Jesus Christ, he also sought to destroy, to physically harm people who were a part of this new fledgling thing called the way. The church, even to the point of murder. Slanderers, haters of God, it says, oh, let's go back to Rome, uh, Acts chapter 8, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Never says in the Bible that he was, it, it never gives a description of him actually killing someone. It does say that he gave hearty approval, but guess what? He put himself into that camp because he was a hater of the people of God, even to the point of murder. Now, this is, this is the, the one that maybe we can identify with. They are slanderers. I went to Romans for this in Colossians. Did this really have to do with the Apostle Paul? Yes. Slanderers, haters of God. Look at the word. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. You see, we usually look at Romans 1, and it does zero in on the decline of sin into a particular kind of sin. But then he backs out and he expands it and says, look, this is what we all were before Christ. Insolent is, is a picture of this. It's the high-handed sin. It's, it's being an enemy of God and an enemy of His people. He was out to utterly destroy Christianity and the entire name of Jesus Christ would be expunged completely from history if Saul had anything to do with it. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the irony of this. I had an excellent question right before I came up here. Do, we've been talking about false prophets. Do false prophets or teachers always, are, are they always uh, intentional in their false teaching? Or are some of them just immature? We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. I really think that some just start out and they go into error, but when they're corrected, they become haughty. And then they become insolent. How dare you try to correct me? And when they don't yield to that correction, then they end up being false teachers. Now, here, again, is the irony. Paul said, look at it right there on your note, he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was an insolent opponent, an enemy of God, shaking his fist in the, of the, hand, in the face of God, and he thought he was doing God a favor. Wow. I don't know that a lot of you can really identify with Paul at this point. That's some pretty heavy stuff. That comes from a leadership position of someone who is absolutely opposed to, to God. Now, he says this, look at it again, he was acting ignorantly 
and in unbelief. That almost feels like, it sounds like he's trying to excuse his actions. But again, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, you're going to find that when people have God revealed to them, whether in nature or according to the word, and they resist that, what happens? Professing to be wise, they become fools. Paul fell into ignorance because of his unbelief, even though he thought he was doing the right thing. And I, I've wondered all my ministry life, I've prayed, oh God, don't let this ever happen to me. If I'm teaching something that's wrong and I need to be corrected, help me to accept that correction. If it, if it is something that I need to correct, Lord, it's so vitally important. But how was Paul finally arrested? I'm going to use that word. There's another word that could be used. How was Paul finally ambushed? He was arrested. He was ambushed by the Word of God. Paul knew the Ten Commandments. Here's here's the thing that I want to get across to you. It's possible for somebody to grow up in the church to have a certain kind of following of the Ten Commandments, a a certain outward expression of morality, and yet never truly in their hearts be arrested by the law of God which leads us to see our sin, which leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. Paul knew the Ten Commandments. Oh, my goodness. He could quote them in Hebrew. Well, he spoke Hebrew. What shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He could work his way through the first nine, which were primarily outward. At least they can be expressed outward. He came to the 10th commandment. He said, I would not have known what it means to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. That's an inward sin. And all of a sudden, it began to open Paul's eyes to the reality that he was a sinner and he was arrested by the word of God. There was a story of a young man who went to uh, apply for a job. And so he was filling out the job application. One of the questions said, have you ever been arrested? He put no. The next question was really written for people who had been arrested. Have you been arrested? The next question said, why? But he just went ahead, even though he said, no, I've never been arrested, and he went ahead and filled out the next question. Why? And he put, because I never got caught. That's a great expression of the blindness that a lot of people who are religious people have and they don't realize. 
I've never been arrested by God's Word because I never got caught. Thank God, not only literally, but I'm speaking of a heart issue spiritually for those of us who finally realized because the law of God came to bear upon our lives and they re, you realize, I realized that I was a sinner, undone, standing before a holy God. I was arrested. Thank God. Now, I mean spiritually, okay? But thank God, even, even though some who have been arrested physically, that was the breaking point. That's when they saw their need for a holy God. Now, it wasn't just the law of God that came to bear. It was something else. Read verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Look at that. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul not only was arrested by the law of God coming to bear against his sin, but he was also led to give thanks to God for his free undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who met Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, I'm not going to read the the three sections of that. If you want to write them down real quickly, you can can go back or you can look them up. Acts chapter 9 is the actual story of Paul being arrested on the road to Damascus. A face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then later on in a sermon to the Jews in Jerusalem, chapter 22, he again tells the story. Paul used his personal testimony over and over again. So Acts 9 tells the story. Acts 22, he's speaking to Jews, and he tells the story, his personal testimony again. And then later on in Acts 26, he's speaking to King Agrippa. Look, your personal testimony of what Christ has done in your life can be used anywhere and at any time. Did you notice what he said in verse 12? Formerly. So as a part of your personal testimony, please include this, formerly. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, he said. I was an insolent opponent. That was my former life. Just as he says to the church at Corinth sometime later, such were some of you. And I could say it to the church at Heritage, such were some of you. Probably not a persecutor, but definitely blasphemers and insolent opponents, yes, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. Formerly, he says, and so his former lifestyle had been put in the past. Now, this is important. It dovetails with some of the things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We mentioned this first last week. If you are in Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Imagine, and this is what we see today, hyphenated Christianity. I've 
shared with you over and over why hyphenated Christianity is such a danger. Identifying with your former lifestyle as if it can be your present identity and hyphenating it with Christian has almost, almost become to some of us normal. Until you look back at Paul's former lifestyle and you try to do it with him. What would you think if somebody said, well, I'm a blasphemer Christian? You'd say, that, that, somehow that doesn't, that doesn't go together. I'm an insolent opponent Christian. No, that was your former lifestyle. That's the way you used to live. Those things are in the past. All things have become new. By what? Not only the Word of God, but also the grace of God. Listen, Christian. Students, look at me. Off your phone, please. Unless you're looking at the Scripture, then you can look at it. You're not perfect. None of us are. Did some of you adults all of a sudden get off your phone when I said that? Maybe the best thing I've said today. If somebody teaches you that you can meet the living Lord of glory, like Paul did on the road to Damascus, there are young people scattered all throughout. They're just concentrated over here so I can pick on them because I love him so much. Paul knew that he could not meet the living Lord of glory like he did on the road to Damascus and remain the same. And if you encounter any teaching that says that you can, you can believe and you can accept Jesus and yet not be, and I'm not talking about perfection, progressively transformed into the image of Christ with all of the ups and downs that are a part of the Christian experience, please run from that teaching. Paul said, because the grace of God overflowed for me, I was able to make that 180 degree turn. There are lives in here that if you could give your testimony, you would say, I've had that 180-degree turn in my life. Share your testimony of God's power to save. It'll not only include the law of God coming to bear on your sin, it will also include, look at this, what we just read, the overflowing grace of God. I love that word. That word picture is beautiful. Overflowing. It's a, it's a combination of two words. To flow over with another word tacked on the front that means hyper, uber. It was the hyper overflowing grace of God to change Paul and it changes us. The story's told, I don't know if it's true or not, some guy painted a picture of Niagara Falls. He put it into an, an exhibit of other pictures, but he 
He forgot to title it. And some, somebody titled it for him with a really fun title, I think. Beautiful picture of Niagara Falls. The title of it was More to Come. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? You, you don't even have to get close to it to get wet. You walk up to the edge where you're not in the boat out in the water, and the overflowing power of that water coming and just coming over and coming over and coming, it washes over us. And that's the picture that Paul said. It wasn't just the law of God that showed me my sin of covetousness. It was the overflowing grace of God. R.C. Sproul, Jr., you see this quote? on the top of your worship guide. I love this. Sin is powerful, even for those who have been reborn. Christian, would you agree with that? Absolutely. This is a true and trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. He's quoting 1 Timothy 1.15 that we'll get to. To diminish the power of grace is to diminish the scope of our own sin. Jesus, after all, didn't come to save the polite, well-behaved people. He came to save his own and gave them first repentant hearts. There is no sin and there is no accumulation of sin that God's grace cannot cover but it doesn't just happen. Listen, God's forgiveness has a bite to it, okay? There, there are a lot of things that um, are out there. I don't know if you see articles and titles of articles and you hear certain phrases and you just react to that or respond to it at least mentally. One of those that I thought of while I was preparing this sermon was uh, discussions and I, I'm not saying I take a particular political stand one way or the other. I'm just saying it's an interesting concept that people need to think through. Have you ever heard the phrase in the last, I don't know, little while, student loan forgiveness? Have you heard that? That's a misnomer. Why? Because somebody has to pay the debt. And so when we talk about the overflowing grace of God, forgiveness means that Jesus Christ has paid the debt. And that's the heart of the gospel. Verse 15, this saying, literally, faithful word, that, that's what it, that's, literally that's what it says. This saying and Paul has several sayings throughout his, his letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus. This saying is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. It deserves full acceptance. And what is that? It's the mission statement of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is a gospel word. And again, this is Jesus' mission statement. This is why he came into the world. He didn't come into the world to seek the righteous, 
So if we've got any of those, see yourself as self-righteous. The Bible's pretty clear. He came into the world to seek and save the lost. He didn't come into the world to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is love that God was made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Just so you'll know, um, and there's power in this. It never says, listen, it never says that God sent his son, that Jesus came into the world to try and save sinners. Did Did you hear what I just said? He is not an impotent Savior. He didn't come into the world to try and save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. God has a plan. Now, certainly there is a desire in the heart of God. We need to know this. There is a part of the heart of God. I don't understand all of this. All people be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a part of the heart of God. But he has infallibly purposed that some will be eternally saved. And I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope. Because I've got family members, and if all Jesus came into the world to do was to try to save, I'd say they're too far gone. But I know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save, actually save sinners, and that gives me the greatest confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise, King James, cast out. This is, you know what that is? What I just gave you, that little tidbit? That is a gospel statement of effectual grace. God didn't come into the world to try to save Paul. He came into the world because there was already a plan in place. Paul said this in Galatians, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Paul would say it like this, I didn't choose you. Lord, I was going to Damascus, and you know what road I was on. I was running from you, but you set me apart from my mother's womb. Jesus came to save sinners. By the way, what's a sinner? How many of you today are are sinners? Yeah? You all raised your hand. Because any violation of the law transgression of the law, lawlessness, defines us and puts us into that category. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death. Now, let's transition because verse 15 probably, as I shared with you last week, is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And I love this, how Paul saw himself in that whole scheme that all have sinned. And I'll ask you a question. How do you see yourself? 
in that whole mass of people that all have sinned. Where do you put yourself on that scale? Now, I want you to notice what he said when he called himself the chief of sinners. He didn't say, I was. Look at it again in the Scripture. He said, to me, I am the foremost, the chief. It doesn't mean that he sinned most deeply. It means that in the whole realm of all who had sinned, put him at the front of the line because he needed the gospel. Again, a quote from Richard Baxter, a Puritan. It's on your notes. The very design of the gospel is to abase us. And the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not an ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creation. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not humble. And the older Paul got, the more he increased in his own humility, enabled to see his place in that whole, whole realm of being a sinner. Look at this progression. I mentioned it to you a couple of weeks ago, but I've always loved to look at the letters of Paul and how he classified himself in terms of his growth in humility in placing himself under the need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back in 1 Corinthians, around 55 AD, one of the earlier books that Paul wrote, here's what he said. Here's how he tagged himself. I am the least of the apostles. So you look at the group of apostles, the teachers, man, I'm the least. Now, this was not a self-esteem issue. This was an accurate view of who he was and how he saw himself in relationship to others. But then he, he grew in his understanding of the gospel. And later on in about 62 AD, look at this. He said, not only am I the least of the apostles, he expanded it. I'm the least of all of the saints. It would be like me, not in false humility, saying, I look at the staff and the elders of this church, I'm the least. And then it would be like me looking out at all of the members of our church and, well, the regular attenders, and saying, no, that's not enough. I'm not only the least of... The, the staff and the elders, I'm the least of all of the saints at Heritage. Now, he said the least of all of the saints. And then he comes to the end of his life, just before he's about to get his head chopped off, 67 AD. And he says this, we read it a minute ago. It's a trustworthy and saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. King James says, I'm the chief of sinners. This was not rhetoric. It was not hyperbole. It was not false humility. It was not lack of self-esteem. Here's a good definition. You need to write this down. I discovered this years ago. A good definition of humility 
is accepting what God says about you without argument. Accepting what God says about you without argument. And then he comes to the end, verses 16 and 17. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, here's here's the closing part of his testimony, look, in me, as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him, those to come after for eternal life. Then he closes with a great doxology of grace to the Lord, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's his point. If God can save the chief of sinners in Paul, Let that be an example. We said this at the very beginning, that no one is too sinful. No one is too far gone. Never stop praying for someone. And especially if that someone seems too far gone for you. I mentioned earlier John Newton the author of Amazing Grace. I I just want to close by reading the story because John Newton is, he doesn't live today, but he could be called a modern-day Apostle Paul. Listen to how the grace of God saved John Newton. John had a godly mother. She died when he was only seven years of age. He was turned over to his relatives and soon forgot the scriptures that his mother taught him. At the age of 11, he realized his dream and joined his father's ship. But from that moment on, it was anything but clear sailing. He soon learned the ways of sin common to the lives of many seafaring men. His biography tells that he began to fight with his own father, clashed with his employers, was flogged for desertion, and finally he ended up in jail. He even earned, this is incredible, the reputation of being able to curse for two hours straight without repeating a word. John was so depraved that punishment didn't even change him. After he was released from prison, he continued his immoral lifestyle. Eventually, his downward path led him to desert the Navy. He fled to Africa so that in his own words, I might sin my fill. And he eventually ended up in the most despicable of all trade in those days, the slave trade. He found his way onto a slave ship. His debauchery continued until one night his ship hit a storm off of Ireland. The storm thundered against the vessel to such an extent that the whole crew feared for their lives. The water began to fill the decks. The crew ran to the pails and the pumps, desperately trying to get the water out of the ship. But Newton and the crew knew that they could do nothing against the force of such a storm. Fearing for his own life, John cried out. Now, let me stop and say, I hope that you don't have to get to the bottom to be able to look up 
He cried out, if this will not do, then the Lord have mercy on us. And the guy writing this said he was arrested in his heart. He realized his depravity. He cried out to the Lord and he found that there was overflowing grace. He said, for the likes of me. In case some of you don't know who John Newton is, was, he's the author of Amazing Grace. We can understand some of the words that he put in that hymn, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. He died on the 21st of December, 1807 in London, having served the Lord for 60 years after his conversion. And on his tombstone, he wrote his own epitaph on his tombstone in the churchyard at Olney, where he served as a pastor. It reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel, formerly, a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And what God did for John Newton, listen to me, and this could be for someone very specific in this audience today, he can do for you. If you will let the the Word of God, the law of God, reveal to you your disobedience, your sin, the fact that you deserve His judgment, it's all you deserve. But by His mercy and grace, overflowing, He has offered you pardon through repentance and faith. Will you bow your heads? (coughs) Father, I pray that if there is anyone here today who does not know the Savior, I pray that they would not continue to ignore the promptings of your word energized by your Holy Spirit. I pray that they would humble themselves and see that they need Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, if not already, I pray that you would grant to them the gifts of repentance and faith. I pray that they would give that repentance and faith to you and they would be utterly, totally saved and begin a life of transformation. Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that this example of Paul's testimony would be an example for all of us to share the wonder of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in what you have done to save us and that we would share it boldly and without fear to all with whom we have contact. So, Father, we thank you now and pray that in these moments you would help us to respond to you and to your word. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.